The Money Podcast by best-selling author of Money, Rob Moore, dives into how to make, manage, and master money. How to know more, make more, and give more. How to save, invest, and raise money. The Money Podcast is for anyone who wants to make more money in a job, profession, or passion. For money masters and money disasters. They say money doesn't make you happy. Rob says it does. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and we have a very, very distinguished guest on the show today. Now, before I introduce this very infamous man, uh, I've become very good friends with this man. We spent um, a holiday mentoring time in Cayman Islands together, uh, and I regard him to be one of the wisest and most experienced um, business men and mentors um, of his generation. Now, he has an amazing story. I'm actually going to do two interviews with him, one on reinvention and one on money. So um, the man you can see here is Gerald Ratner. So hi, Gerald. Hi, Rob. Thanks a lot for jumping in on um, on this money interview. Very grateful. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me. Now, um, Gerald said just before we went live, Rob, you can ask me absolutely anything. And I'm going to try and make him regret that somewhat. Um, But Gerald actually wrote a brilliant book called The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Gerald Ratner. Uh, And uh, if you don't know who he is, he was famous for being, he actually had the biggest jewellery empire in Europe. And I'm going to let him talk about that in a moment. Um, I think it was late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and he, he made a very famous, infamous speech, and then his life changed. Um, but for this particular interview, we're going to talk specifically around money for two reasons. Um, one is because this is going to go on my money podcast, which you can find on Stitcher and iTunes. It's called Money by Rob Moore. And two, Gerald Ratner really has made millions, probably hundreds of millions. And he really has lost millions, probably hundreds of millions. And he really has made millions again. Um, and there aren't that many people who can give you the highs and the lows. So, Gerald, the first thing I'm going to ask you is in America, if you've made millions, lost millions, made millions, lost millions, that seems better and makes you more credible than if you've just made millions. You've lost millions. What's your experience as a Brit? How did losing millions make you feel? How did people react to you? And was it better for your CV that you lost millions or was it not good for your CV? Well, yeah, you're right about America because uh, in the UK, it's black and white. If you've lost millions and you're down on your knees, you're in the gutter, people will kick you. Um, It's very simple. You know, if you're successful making money, then you're a hero. And uh, if you don't, if you've had a setback, which most businessmen have, um, you're a zero. Uh, whereas America is very different. You know, they've got this factory and thing, which is basically bankruptcy, uh, which they, you go into that uh, and nobody, there's no stigma attached to it whatsoever. So, yeah, I think it is a problem uh, here in the UK that um, we look at people that have had setbacks in such a negative way. Um, as far as I'm concerned, it was a massive fall from grace. There's no question about it. But um, 
I do speeches now all over the world. Well, I did up until COVID. And if it wasn't for that fall, uh, I wouldn't be doing those speeches because I'd just be like another businessman uh, who's had ups and downs. Um, it wouldn't really be much of a story. But the fact that I lost it all overnight uh, appeals to people. Um, only it appeals to them because I then made it back or made some of it back. I think people don't want to look at somebody who's actually, you know, living in a council flat, has lost everything and is uh, sort of some sort of klutz. Uh, but so, yeah, I don't, I look at it this way that I really do enjoy the public speaking and I wouldn't be doing it if I hadn't made the speech. So I've always got to look at silver lining in life. So I want to talk about how you reinvented yourself from a money perspective in a moment. Um, because you've done, I know, thousands of speeches, and I'm going to ask you about that. What we will do, because this is going to be shorter than my disruptive interviews, because this is going on in my, my money podcast, we will do a Q&A at the end. So if you're watching live on any of my channels, um, please post your question in the comments. I'll pick them out as we go. And please make sure you stay till the end so that we could get your question and get you shouted out. And Gerald has said he'll answer anything. So, Gerald, if you could estimate... How many speeches have you done on the famous speech that lost you everything? <laughs> the speech about it. I always say to people, I'm just about to go off to do a speech about a speech. And, uh, yeah, there's no point in avoiding that elephant in the room. Um, people say, well, why do you always talk about it? You know, why do you bring it up? It's because people expect that from me. When you hear the name Gerald Ratner, it's synonymous with the speech I made nearly 30 years ago. Um, so there's no point in avoiding that. I did avoid it for many years and didn't want to talk about it. Um, but actually, it was only when I started talking about it in public that I really came to terms with it. You know, it was cathartic in a way. Um, and when people then heard the speech and they thought, well, what's all the fuss about? Why did you, you know, why are you so unpopular? Uh, you just did what all of us have done in the past. So it was a great thing to do. I mean, it's been very lucrative doing speeches across the world, as you say, uh, making people laugh, which is what I enjoy doing, although that's how I got into trouble in the first place. But um, it's great to just not bottle it all up and get your story out there. And I've always had fantastic receptions from people, you know, people coming up to me at the end of the speech saying, well, you know, you've really, really cheered me up because I've been going through a difficult time and my bank has foreclosed on me and you've made my day because, you know, you've come back and you can do it, anybody can. So we all go through this. And in, in a way, you know, we don't really, we're not part of the human race unless we've had a setback. You meet people who have sailed through life without any problems and there's some lack of empathy, lack of sympathy there. So you... To be part of the human race, you have to have suffered. And um, I feel that, you know, it has done me a lot of good. I mean, a friend of mine said to me the other day, he says, you're much nicer now that you're not as successful. And I said, well, I'd rather not be so nice and be successful. But nevertheless, thanks very much. So that's great. Um, so just give me a rough estimation, because I'm getting to something with this. How many speeches do you think you've done since your infamous speech on your infamous infamous speech? Well, I started off um, in 2003 when I launched my online jewellery business called Gerald Online. Um, I, I wasn't getting any publicity. And the whole concept was to use my um, fact that I was infamous to get lots of traffic to the website. 
not to spend a lot of money on marketing and advertising. That was the idea of it, to you to turn the negative into a positive. But I wasn't getting any publicity from the press. I'd sent them a um, press release saying I'm launching this, but they weren't press were not really interested in anything like that, or good news, or it's a bit dull. So I thought, well, the only thing that people take any notice of is the, the speech that I made at the Albert Hall in 1991. So I got in touch with the well, I got in touch with the IOD um, where I made my speech and said, why don't you have me back, knowing that I'd get a lot of publicity from it. Uh, I sent them an email and they, they said, yeah, okay. So I went back in front of 6,000 people in 2003 and uh, I got a huge amount of publicity. It was actually on the 6 o'clock news that they – the BBC felt it was wrong that everybody stood up and applauded me and welcomed me back, you know, that I should have things thrown at me. But um, it worked very, very well, and I got a lot of publicity. So, But there was somebody there in the audience, to answer your question, from to Travel, who said that's exactly the sort of thing that we need for our people, uh, for you to speak in front of them. And uh, I did a speech for to Travel, which was uh, set in a very nice part of the world, Morocco. I flew out there with my wife, and uh, I thought, oh, this is this is great, you know, free weekend and I enjoyed doing the speech and stuff like that. And uh, from then on, was I, agents got in touch with me. That was 2003. Uh, and around 2008, I was doing something like 150 speeches a year. One, I remember one day in November, I did a speech in the morning in uh, Pall Mall. I got picked up by a Virgin motorbike to Zoom me to... Um, Euston Station, put me on the train to do a speech in Manchester in the afternoon and then drove to Sheffield for an early evening speech and then an after-dinner speech in Leeds. I mean, that was a bit – I was more worried about, obviously, not making the time. But, yeah, it's gone down a bit since then. But uh, And I haven't paid back the half a billion pound into my account that I lost by making the original speech, but I have uh, made a lot of money. Uh, but more important than that, I just love, love doing it. And I've really suffered in this year. I've really, really missed um, not getting around and doing speeches and meeting people. Yeah. So, I mean, just for someone watching, you know, speakers usually get anywhere between 3,000 and whatever you want to pay, 250 grand, 500 grand yeah. a speech. Not, even <laughs> No, not yet, Gerald. Um, but even at three grand times 100 speeches a year, you know, that's a really good living over 17 years. So it's nice to see that, you know, you've made some millions back. So let's go now on this journey of making millions, losing millions and making millions again. And if we could just first off, just talk about the numbers and then we'll go into the story. So at, in your heyday, Gerald, what were you turning over as a European jewellery business? Well, we were making £125 million pounds profit. Um, in the day before the speech, I'd actually announced a £125 million profit, which, bearing in mind that's 30 years ago, that's almost a billion, I was supposed today, something in that region of profit. Now, I don't know of any retailer um, in the UK that's making that sort of money. So it was a phenomenally successful business, and that's the sadness of the speech, how it ended overnight. £125 million profit. Uh, a couple of billion turnover, two and a half thousand shops. As you once pointed out, Rob, we employed more people than the Royal Navy. And uh, we were one of the few retailers that had actually succeeded in crossing the, in the Atlantic. You know, Marks and Spencers, Tesco, they'd all failed because they were 
basically exporting their formula uh, where American markets very different. We weren't arrogant, however successful we were in the UK, we weren't arrogant enough to do that. And we bought local management and we, we cracked uh, the US, which was an incredibly difficult thing. And the, and the city loved that because they saw a retailer with the, the problem. We had 50 percent of the UK market, but the, the city felt that there was we were ex-growth. We couldn't get 60 or 70 percent. We're not going to grow. So they were worried. So the fact that we'd gone to America and we, we succeeded there with a market which was 50 times the size of the UK in jewellery, it's massive in jewellery. Um, the fact we created it was very, very exciting. So our shares actually went up two years running more than any share price uh, in the FTSE 100. Um, they really outperformed. They were the top performer, two, two years running, which is unbelievable. And one more statistic, we were taking more money per square foot than any other retailer in Europe. So we were really on the crest of a wave when I stupidly <laughs> went out to the uh, Albert Hall that day and derided one of my products, although it's always said I said it about all my jewellery. It was just a joke about one product. But there's no point in uh, complaining if you call one of your products crap and people assume that everything you sell is crap. And, uh, I hold my hands up to that. So in terms of the story, the speech, the reinvention, I'm going to save that for our other interview on the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast because I want to focus this one on the money theme. So how much money did you corporately and personally lose after that famous speech? Well, the share price went down uh, by 500 million pounds. Um, and, but what was worse than that was that because we went toxic, our sales started evaporating. And when your sales started evaporating with your fixed costs of rent, staff and everything like that, you go into loss very, very quickly in retail. You can have, you know, in the fashion business, you can have a bad season and you can go bust. That's what it's like. Um, and we went into loss. And I remember uh, the bank manager, well, he wasn't the bank manager, he was actually the chief executive of Barclays Bank who phoned me up. Uh, and I naively said is it about the billion pounds that i owe you and uh he said yeah it is actually um and i said well the bad news is that we're not going to make the 200 million pound profit because they had to the, the the brokers had 200 million pound forecast for us for the current year so we're not going to make the 200 million we're going to miss it by 300 million uh, and we did deliver a, a loss of 100 million pounds. So the turnaround was absolutely dramatic. The share price fell from £4.30 to 2p. Uh, and that's why it's regarded as the worst corporate. I'm not proud of saying this, but I'm just stating a fact. Um, although probably it's probably better with my speeches that it is the worst corporate disaster rather than the second or the third. Uh, but it's the it's, that's why it's regarded as the worst corporate disaster of all time. Okay, so how long did it take you to recover from that? Um, well, actually, let's do it in three stages, if you could answer these in order. Number one, how long did it take to lose everything? Number two, how long did it take you to personally recover? And then number three, how did you get back into making money? Well, there was no social media uh, in 1991 
So it took a while for the bad news, if you like, to filter through. It was done over the garden fence and in the pub uh, rather than on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, so, but that's a much slower process. So at first I thought I might have got away with this because we were only about three or four percent down. We could, and I thought if we were three or four percent down the first week, it's going to get better. But it didn't. It got worse uh, to twenty percent, twenty-five percent down. Then they discovered that I owned H Samuel as well. It wasn't only Ratners. Uh, we couldn't sell a diamond ring in H Samuel, which is our most profitable line. Then they discovered that I owned uh, owned Ernest Jones. I think there was one bloke walking around Manchester trying to buy a watch for his wife, and he didn't want to go into any shop that I owned. But he realised everywhere he went, including Watch of Switzerland, was a Ratners Group store. Um, in the end, he didn't even buy her um, piece of jewellery because he he gave up so much. Because you know we we had fifty percent of the market. So, but. It was get just the situation just got worse and worse, and um, in the end, somebody he was actually Sir David Alliance, who was the chairman of Courtholes, uh, said, "You need a chairman to um, deal with this." You, I was chairman and chief executive. You need a chairman uh, to handle this for you, and he introduced me to a guy called Jim McAdam, Dow Scottish guy. Um, people always regarded him as a bit like Mr. Mackay in the, in uh, Porridge. And I was a bit like Ronnie Barker. You know, that was the sort of relationship we had. Uh, totally, you know, I was in my early 40s and he was in his late 60s. And he was a real tough Scottish, you know, sort of, he, he was the chief operating officer at Courtois. We didn't get on, uh, but it took about 18 months, which was the worst 18 months of my life, um, before he eventually fired me, actually. Um, so then I basically had given up hope and uh, wasn't working at all and was uh, famously lying in bed watching Countdown every day. Um, but then my wife said that we can't go on like this because I had debts and uh, credit card bills and I hadn't had a job and stuff like that. But the one thing that was keeping me uh, sane was um, exercise. So um, I thought I want to go into the health club business. It's now 1997. It was seven years, nearly seven years since I'd lost my job and, and had done nothing. Uh, and it was at that point that uh, she did me a favour by threatening to throw me out unless I got a job because I went out and uh, went and found a, a site. Although I didn't have any money, uh, I found a site to open up a health club. It was a book warehouse and it was costing three quarters of a million pounds, which was... So, so I went to the bank to ask him to lend me that money and he didn't even offer me a cup of tea or biscuit. He thought it was the most ridiculous idea. But I, there's an old saying that don't sell the bear skin till you shoot the bear. Um, I'd love to put it on record that I'm really against shooting bears, but that's nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about. Um, the thing was that I actually ignored that advice and i started i put an advert in the paper even though i hadn't bought the the, the premises because i didn't have the money i put an advert in the paper offering uh to sell membership for the health club uh, before i bought it and uh, put a lovely drawing in the local paper and on that back of that uh, ad i got about 800 people to sign up with their direct debits uh and then when I took that to the bank, they still said no, but eventually I found a bank that said yes. Um, so we opened it up. We got 2,500 members. 
and uh, I sold it for four million pounds uh, two and a half years later. I didn't even have to pay any capital gains tax on it because my accountant said you've lost so much money you can offset your losses. So I was quite chuffed by that. Um, and it was a wonderful feeling for me after what I'd been through. I hadn't, I hadn't been on holiday for seven years and we went on holiday and uh, you really, it was the best holiday I ever had. And I'd been to, you know, most exotic places when I was the chairman of Ratners and uh, my private, well, I had my own private jet and stuff like that, but never was a holiday more enjoyable than that one. After, you know, It's a bit like coming out of COVID, but seven, this one is lasting a year. This was seven years. So now, um, 10 years really on from your famous speech, you've um, set up and run and sold a gym and made millions. You've got Ratner Online, which earns you money. And you're a public speaker doing sometimes 150 speeches a year that you're getting paid for. So actually, you've created three income streams there. Um, So do you feel like, you were maybe a bit overexposed when you had everything that you owned and everything in your reputation and all of your portfolio of companies was all in one business model in jewellery, whereas now you're a bit more diverse because you have an online store and public speaking. Of course, you have your book revenue as well. Do you think if you'd have been a bit more diverse, you may not have lost everything back then? Well, you'd think so, because as you say, I've now got three streams of income coming in. But I'd like to tell you, and I'm not sitting here complaining like a lot of people, because I don't believe, I think self-pity is one of the most, you know, least attractive traits. You're right, I've got three streams of income. You'd think, you know, to cover me uh, from anything. If one goes down, you get another two. And that was, I was always told by Sir Isaac Wolfson, my great hero who owned great universal stores he was in every business going uh he had you know the burberries and he had a mail order business that doesn't exist anymore and he had other retail businesses he had property business and he always said to me you know i'm always going to do well because something goes down something goes up it's nothing always goes down at the same time till this year when all everything has gone down well with with the exception of some things perhaps like supermarkets but all my three um, streams of income have gone, totally gone. People are not buying jewellery because it's all around weddings. Um, I'm not doing public speaking. I'm relying on, you know, uh, uh, talking at the Grosvenor House in front of a 1,000 people in the great room, all huddled together, all having drink. I don't know when that's going to happen again. Um, and it's it's... So all three streams have gone down, and that's why I'm writing this book with you, Rob. I do appreciate it that, that I'm doing something. Um, although, you know, as I said, I'm not complaining. I'm doing a lot of exercise. I'm walking the dog. I'm cycling. Um, I'm doing TRX um, against the wall, um, and that's keeping me safe. Once again, when I was going mad in 1997 when I lost my job, it was exercise that kept me sane, and it's exercise that's keeping me sane this time. But I'm hoping, hoping 2021 is all going to be a great year again and all those streams of income are going to come back. But I can't, I don't think I could take another year of it. 
I'm, I'm very confident your um, new book, Reinvent Yourself, is going to fly off the shelves. Um, anyone listening, um, if you're live or before December the 3rd, um, Gerald Ratney's new book, Reinvent Yourself, is live. Um, I'm very grateful and it's been a privilege to co-write it with Gerald, though. Um, let's be honest, it's sort of at least 70% him, which is why people have been asking me, you know, why aren't you equal author? Why aren't you on the cover? Because I've just really supported Gerald in this. Um, one thing I'll just add, Gerald, because um, actually, and, and I don't say this to um, rub anyone's nose in it, whether it's yourself or anyone else listening, but um, our profit margins have probably gone up 300%. Um, and we will have maybe our second best, maybe our best year ever um, since when we finish our year end. And our year end is Jan to December. Um, and I've been paid a lot more to do online speaking gigs. I do speaking gigs like yourself. Um, and I have my speaking fee, but I don't do too many. I've certainly never done 150 in a year, not paid ones anyway. Um, I, I tend to sort of do just a few of them, um, but quite a bit. I've been hired quite a lot to do online speaking, I think maybe because of my um, social media reach. Um, and we, our online courses are absolutely flying off the shelves. So um, just for anyone listening, I think if you can – write your book. I think if you can set an, up an online course, if I think if you can have online assets that aren't reliant on needing to get in the car and drive anywhere and aren't reliant on you needing a shop front or, or you know, or, or physical overhead, uh, I think that that can really help. I can imagine, Gerald, because um, the news looks quite good at the moment for a change, but I can imagine once the world opens up again, they've already said there's business events for up to a thousand. I know it'll be socially distanced, but um, you know, I'm sure there'll be you'll be having 150, 200, 250 speaking gigs in again, because um, if anyone hasn't seen Gerald speak, you absolutely have to. His speeches um, it's one of the best speeches I've ever heard. So I'm looking forward to you getting back on the circuit, Gerald. Um, right. Let's talk about money then. So um, what did you learn about money specifically making millions? Loot well, make making billions, losing billions. I should have rechanged the, the title there and making millions again. What have you learned about money? Give us some things you've learned about money. Well, I mean, it's a bit like a footballer who's got a Bentley at age 23. He doesn't really appreciate it. Um, you have to have sort of really gone through the mill a bit and really, you know, lost out and then made it and then, you know, you appreciate it. And um, I was remember once sitting in my kitchen listening to the budget and it was Nigel Lawson 1986 and he reduced uh, income tax from 60% to 40% um, which was actually going to put 200,000 because I was earning 850,000 pounds basic salary so that was immediately as I was sitting there listening to the radio that's putting 200,000 pounds into my pocket do you think I'd be happy about that it made no difference whatsoever to me whatsoever. Uh, I had much other th worrying things to think about. I didn't even care about the 200,000. Now, today, if somebody said to me, uh, I'm going to give you 200,000 pounds to do something, I would be ecstatic. I would be the happiest person in the world. Um, so I really would appreciate um, the money that you make today. And it's annoying that you only do that after losing it, or maybe that's human nature. But, yeah, I mean, I just did not appreciate things. I had, you know, goodness knows how many cars, helicopter or helicopter for $2,500, 
which was a complete waste of time. Uh, Plane and Sikorsky, it was, yeah. It was just a... Two and a half million. Two and a half million. It's going to say... Now, two and a half million dollars. Did I say two and a half thousand? Yeah, you did. I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah. yeah no, I, I wasn't a great at negotiating. I would never have bought anything at two and a half. In fact, it was, uh, I went to this helicopter field. They had three different helicopters, one for about three quarters of a million, one for one and a half, one and two and a half. So there was always, obviously, I was going to buy the most expensive one, the Sikorsky. So, complete and utter waste of money. In fact, I, I did a speech for this guy who supplies eggs um, to supermarkets and um they said to me what was the thing that you wasted your um, most money on ever in your life and i said it was a helicopter i bought and suddenly everybody burst into laughter i thought why are they laughing it's not particularly funny because apparently before i came in the room the chairman of the company had just announced that he'd bought a helicopter and um, so i put my foot in there a bit then so i still managed to uh, have a face that gets me into trouble but um yeah so all those sort of things um it's already you know, it's not enough to make money. That's only half the story. You have to enjoy the money or that you you earn. Otherwise, that money has no value. And um, the money now that I've made, albeit in the businesses that I have today, nothing like the size of the business I had. And I don't want to get too cheesy about this, but I do appreciate uh, what I buy. And I'm much more careful about I wouldn't buy a helicopter. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't waste money on rubbish like that. I I really try and, uh, you know, buy something that I use and appreciate and get tremendous pleasure. And I'd get much more pleasure now from the money that I spend than I did then. And don't ask me why, whether it was because I was young or whether I had too much or whatever. But maybe it's because I lost it all and now I realise the importance of it. Because there's nothing worse uh, than those seven years, uh, which I joke about watching Countdown stuff, but it wasn't particularly funny. Uh, I had huge debts, and that is one of the. And I really do sympathise with people over this COVID um, thing that have got that are building up debts because it's really, really um, unpleasant. And that's why I've written the book with you because um, I've learned from experience that you can't just lie there hoping that something will change, that you'll sort of strike oil at the end of your garden or something. It won't happen uh, just lying around. You've got to get out there. And when you are in that sort of situation that I was in, depression, um, you're fearful of going out there. You just want to stay in cocooned at home. So, you know, the book is about getting out there and it's not anything like as terrifying as um, doing nothing, actually. So do you think you invested wisely before um, your infamous speech? Or do you think, um, had you um, maybe been told three years in advance, in three years, you're going to lose a, a big part of your wealth, might you have invested your money more wisely? I didn't. I invested my money, every single penny in Ratner's shares, because they were going up at such a ridiculous degree that nothing else uh, would uh compare to that investment and uh when the shares went down from four pound fifty to two p um not only did i lose everything because every single penny i had was i even borrowed believe it or not i had a mortgage of 1.7 million pounds uh in those days that's quite a big mortgage today 1.7 million my interest was, was seventeen thousand pounds a month it was all to buy more shares because i was making such a fortune buying those shares 
So when those shares collapsed to nothing, I not only lost everything, but I had debt. And then about a year later, I got a letter from the Revenue and Customs, um, HMRC, with a bill for a million pounds. And I said, what's this about? They said, well, these are options that you took out on the shares. But I said, those shares are worthless. They said, yeah, but they weren't when you took out the option. You've got to pay a million pound um, tax on that, capital gains tax. I think it was. So, um, you know, I sold my house and I really did um, lose every single penny and had a debt. So, yeah, in hindsight, however successful you are, it's always a good thing to stick a bit of money into property, a bit of money into I was going to say jewellery, but that's not a good investment. But here I go again. A uh, bit of money into watches as you as you collect. They've gone up tremendously well. Um, all different sort of stuff. Art. Um, mix it. You know, don't all put your eggs in one basket, which is what I did. Uh, and the result was that um, I lost everything. So I'm going to ask you one more question, Gerald, and then we're going to open the floor for a few questions. So anyone watching, please do put your questions in. We'll take them um, and stay with us. Uh, and anyone who's posted already, we'll go through them. So, Gerald, my final question. Um, can you just give me, remind me again the year of your speech? It was uh, 1991. So April next year will be my 30th anniversary, which I won't be celebrating. Um, seems like yesterday. <laughs> All right. So other than don't go and do this speech, <laughs> what advice would you give to yourself 30 years ago in 1991, but you don't know what's going to happen with the speech? You know, did you feel you were maybe a bit complacent? Maybe you didn't couldn't see downsides, maybe you're a bit bullish, you're a bit overexposed, I don't know. But what advice would you give to that man 30 years ago with what you know now, other than don't do the speech or invest in Apple shares? <laughs> yeah, Rob, I said to you, you could be brutal, that you should have added arrogance to that list of things. <laughs> I did feel that I could walk on water at the time and uh, do whatever. I, and I wanted, as, I wanted as, as much exposure as I possibly could. Why? God knows why, because the most successful people that I see today are often, you know, very low profile. They don't, they're not on, they don't go around telling everybody uh, in the press about all their successes and stuff like that. They're very low key uh, for a very good reason, because the press, bless them, uh, and that's why I don't blame them, they will build you up to knock you down. I was always told that would be the case, but I ignored it. Um, so it was a great honor to be asked to make a speech at the Albert Hall. Um, and I thought this would proliferate my image even more. And it was a fact that the Rat that Ratners was a very small part of the Ratners group. People don't realise that. They think it was only a Ratners. But that Ratners was outperforming the other parts of the group because of the fact that I was getting all this positive publicity. But the press are not there to um, publicise your business uh, they're not there for your benefit. They're there for their benefit. And um, when the story, you know, gets to a point where it's boring that you're still successful, then the new story is to knock you down. And uh, what I did was not the was a stupid thing to do. I fully accept that, and I don't blame anybody else. But it doesn't deserve uh, the effect that it had. But that's 
and the press were totally disingenuous. I mean, they, you know, they said I said it about all my jewellery's crap, and people still on to this day on Twitter say I said that. Um, but, you know, you can't blame anybody but yourself uh, for being too high profile, for being in the press the whole time, uh, for pushing your own brand too much. You've got to be very careful about that. People sometimes, you know, don't want it shoved in their face too much. You know, you've got to be a little bit subtle about it. And um, the other thing I would say is that when I was that successful and I look back at it now and I say, I wish I was running those the world's largest jewellery business today, you know, two and a half thousand shops and all those staff and everything. Um, why didn't I smell the roses a bit more? Why didn't I just sit back and say, this is great, look what I've achieved. But instead of that, I was trying to, the whole time worrying about how I'm going to double my profits again, uh, how I'm going to, you know, I didn't, I was on this treadmill where, oh my God, somebody else is doing better than me. This is a disaster, you know, and maybe that's the thing that drove me to be successful but it doesn't make you happy. So, you know, be a little bit less successful and a little bit happier and a little bit contented with what you're doing. Thank you, Gerald. Right, Harry, let's get some questions up on the screen for Gerald then. Oh, we've got loads. So this is from Sharon Griffith. Sharon, how are you? When you made that speech, what were your immediate thoughts directly after? Well, my immediate uh feeling was that uh, that's a great relief that that's over with. I had no idea that uh, it had gone so terribly wrong because everybody in the audience had cheered and clapped and thought it was funny and thought it was a joke that it was meant to be. In fact, people still come up to me today and said I was at the Albert Hall that day and we don't I still don't understand uh, how we're still talking about it. Um, but so I was just relieved that, the, that it was over. I did have the Daily Mirror come up to me and say, don't you think you're making fun of your customers? And I said, uh, no, I, I was trying to make fun of myself. But um, so there was a little bit of that feeling. And I got back to my house and my secretary phoned me and said, you're getting a lot of bad press about your speech. I said, how can I have bad press? And he made it out an hour ago. So he said, well, you gave a draft of the speech to the press and the Evening Standard have already written about it. So all this business about me saying it behind people's back is rubbish. I'd given a draft to all the press. But the Evening Standard was not that bad. Uh, it was only when I read The Sun and The Mirror the next day that it was horrific. So I was quite happy. I went out that evening with a journalist called Jeff Randall uh, to a restaurant in London. And then when I came out of the restaurant, there was a whole like, paparazzi outside the door. Uh, so at that point, I was beginning to get a bit worried. I went then drove down to the, the Victoria Station to get the papers. And I could only get the sun and the mirror. That was, oh, so the sun and the Times. There's nothing in the Times. And there's only a little bit in the sun. But then my driver the next day gave me the sun. And it, he, I said, what's this? It's right over the head, front page and page three and page five. And the sun had changed their headline because the mirror were running it in such a big way. So it was, um, and then it started dawning on me, what the hell have I done? Okay. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Gerald. Next question. This is from Stephen Stop. What was the biggest lesson you learned about that statement you made about your jewellery? Well, there you are. You see, you may fall into the same mistake that uh, people have been. And I'm not blaming you in any way because, you, you know, that's what the press have been saying, that the statement made about my jewellery. I never mentioned my jewellery other than saying that we sell. And you're going to be a bit surprised by this. But I actually said at that same speech that we sell the highest quality jewellery 
sold by the highest quality staff. I remember that exactly. So that's what I said about my jewellery. Uh, I then said, but we did we did inherit a sherry decanter from H. Samuel, which was crap, um, which was uh, so. And how did your family and suppliers react to that period of your business? Well, that's what you're right. I mean, it's not only you have a an effect. It has a house of cards effect on everybody. Uh, suppliers were making a fortune out of me. Overnight, their businesses went down the drain. They lost everything. Staff, managers in their early 20s who had said to me, nobody would ever give me a job as a manager to this day. And we thank you so much for giving us that chance. They had, they were sacked. And, you know, so um, my family, um, well, they... They were very upset that we had to sell the house and everything like that. But they were—they never, t- nobody ever turned on me in my family um, because they really realised they felt I was always a victim. I mean, I don't actually look at myself as a victim. I blame myself for it. But my family didn't turn on me. But uh, it did have this uh, effect on lots of people that I was associated with. They suffered as well. Stockbrokers suffered, you know, because they lost a huge amount on the shares and. Uh, it just had this when the sun you know writes a load of makes it all up and they should think about the effect that it has on people but they are go criticizing the press and i promise i would never criticize the press so uh, it's a big mistake <laughs> to do that thank you gerald let's take the next question so we are launching reinvent yourself gerald's new book on december the third um this will be published by our publishing house progressive media and I'm very um, honoured to be a co-author with Gerald. I think the time we're in in the world right now, people need this book more than ever, where you probably need to reinvent yourself many times in your career now. You can't have that one career anymore. And, of course, Gerald has reinvented himself from being you know, the biggest jewellery business owner in Europe to having an online jewellery business to running a gym and selling it for $4 million and uh, a public speaker. And, of course, this is not Gerald's first book. He also has written The Rise and Fall and Rise Again. So if we're talking here and some of the bits to the story don't add up because you don't know Gerald's full story, you can get that on his book Rise and Fall and Rise Again, which is in my top 10 books of all time. I read that in 2006, and I've recommended that to so many people. And if anyone ever moans at me, oh, Rob, it's hard. Oh, Rob, I've had a shit day. Oh, Rob, things aren't going well. I go, read The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Gerald Ranner. Then you'll feel happy about your life. Um, But, Gerald, you know, your story has inspired you know, probably millions of people. And it's nice that you can turn that adversity into helping other people, which is why I love you so much. So next question for Gerald. This is from Guy Prince. Guy, I've been present at one of Gerald's speeches and found his outlook refreshing. How did he get involved with the gym? Well, when I uh, lost my job and uh, I was suffering from depression, uh, I went to a psychiatrist. I'm sorry, this is a bit miserable. And uh, she prescribed me um, an antidepressant called Prozac, I think it was. And um, this was not having any effect on me. Well, it was making me feel better, but it wasn't getting me back on my feet because I became like sort of. I'm, I'm sure it, it helps lots of people, but it's horses, of course, and it didn't help me. And uh, I was just sort of. Uh, turned into some sort of I never really spoke very much and went into my skin which is what you know an antidepressant can have you don't have a lot of pain but you don't have anything going on there so when I stopped doing that and started cycling uh, which I still do to this day I cycle 25 miles every day um, 
I've started feeling better myself and I started thinking clearly. And to this day, I uh, get all my best ideas, not when I'm in my office talking to people, when I'm on my bike uh, doing exercise, my mind's clear. So I was cycling and I'm thinking, it's 1997, um, I can see the benefits of exercise, which I never did running my company before because I didn't have enough time for it. Um, and I wanted to get into that business because I, I just always feel that you're better at something if you really love it, uh, like I love doing my speeches. So um, I said, I just want to do, I want to open up a health club. And in Henley, uh, near where I lived, there was actually, it's a very affluent, not a huge place, but um, very affluent. And I thought, there's no health club there. Um, this is, you know, what I want to do. I, want to know what I was so determined that's what I wanted to do, uh, which helps in, you know, reaching. If you really so desperately want something, in the end, you do tend to achieve it. You just move he heaven and earth to, to get it. You, but you've got to be absolutely passionate and determined that that's what you want to do. And that's how I feel about exercise to this day. It's getting me through COVID. Uh, it got me through those difficult seven years. Otherwise, I'd probably still be in, on Prozac or something. Um, so, you know, uh, I love exercise. And um, I was very, very happy to be in that business. My only regret is that I sold it, albeit for $4 because I was about to buy a second one. But I needed the money. <laughs> I did that. Thanks, Gerald. Um Harry, let's just put Nick's really cool comment on. This is great from Nick Allison. It's just a comment, but bought my then girlfriend's engagement ring. Um, then one year later, bought our wedding rings from Ratner's. 31 years later, still together. Ring's still in good, Nick. Um, good quality products. Thank you, Gerald. So that's great. What a lovely comment there. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that because, uh, you know, that is so true. You don't get to 50% of the jewellery market by selling crap. You only get to 50% of the jewellery market uh, by selling good quality products at affordable prices. And that's the sadness that I live with all the time. But, Nick, thanks so much for that. I love those uh, sort of um, testimonials. Okay, any other questions, Harry? Um, from Sharon, what do you enjoy most about speaking, doing the speeches, Gerald? Making people laugh. And that's why um, it doesn't work so much for me. I know it works for you, for Robin. Uh, you, Robin. What I love is when I speak to, I've been to quite a lot of your people with about the book, and they're all so positive about this, the Zoom and, and all the events that are going on online, and that's brilliant. But I tend to rely, I felt a while ago, that there's no point in getting up there um, and doing a speech that is, um, the, which is sad about losing all my money and complaining about the press and complaining about everybody else and saying that life's not fair. I don't think anybody particularly enjoy a speech like that. So I decided quite a while ago that I would play it for laughs and be self-deprecating, joke about it, saying things like, well, I owe the bank a billion pounds, uh, which was a lot of money in those days, stuff like that, and a deadpan face. Um, and just and, and getting everybody to laugh. So I love making people laugh. Um, and it doesn't work for me as I'm not doing myself much credit here because I'd love people to ask me to do speeches on Zoom. <laughs> but so I have done a more serious speech now that I'm doing. Uh, and of course, I've got the Institute of Directors who phoned me up and asked me to do one recently. But it's not the same as standing um, in a hotel room in front of 150 people 
Uh, they've all had a few drinks and all having a good laugh about it. And that's what I just absolutely love. And also with the speaking, I'm getting across the fact that I am not this person that the press uh, painted me to be some sort of snob who makes fun of people who've got less money than myself. Uh, nothing actually could be further from the truth. And it's uh, very sad the way that came out. But um, so, dude, I absolutely love speaking and I'm desperate to get back out there again. Thank you, Gerald. Right. So we're going to finish now. Uh, and the reason being is we're going to take about half an hour break if you're watching live. And then we're going to go live again on some of my other channels for the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, talking about reinventing yourself. So we probably will talk a bit more about the nuts and bolts and practicalities of how Gerald reinvented himself and talk a bit more through his story. So if you're watching live, we'll see you on some of my social media platforms in about half an hour and we'll do a Q&A again. If you're listening on The Money Podcast, you'll hear Gerald's second interview on the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. But most importantly, Gerald Ratner's new book, December the 3rd launch, um, which is called Reinvent Yourself. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Uh, and like I said, Gerald's um, um, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again is in my top, top 10 books of all time. And I think that this will um, live up to the, the hype, maybe even more than Gerald's first book. So make sure you grab that um, when the book is live. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thank you, Gerald. We'll see you in half an hour. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything.